Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi there. I want to talk to you about Doug. You, you're okay. This one, real fucking up. Okay, this is not now. This is bowling. There are rules. Hey, Walter, come on. Oh, you're from the neighborhood. You're right. Well, that's not entirely true. I came to see you, but where are the paperweights? That's what I want to see now. It's just torture and murder. No platinum characters. Very, very realistic. I think it's what's next. Am I hallucinating here? Just what in the hell do you think you're doing? Learning about Cuba. Toast to toast, my friends, to our health and cheer and happiness. Otto, let the ritual begin. Hello and welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast. My name is Chris. I am your host, Joined with my co-host, Andrew. Sir, how are you doing today? Oh, you know, slugging through life. How are you, sir? Uh, I can't complain. (laughs) And uh, on the docket for today, we just watched a comedy from 1983 entitled Dr. Detroit. Dr. Detroit is the story of a college professor that is coerced into becoming the protector for four ladies of the evening... By donning an alter ego of Dr. Detroit to protect them from Mom, the leader of Chicago's underground escort service. (laughs) Dr. Detroit was directed by Michael Pressman. Screenplay was done by Carl Gottlieb. Gottlieb, maybe? Gottlieb, yeah, probably Gottlieb. Uh Bruce J. Friedman and Robert Boris. The cinematography was done by King Baguette. It was edited by Christopher Greenberry. The music was done by Lalo Schifrin, best known for composing the original Mission Impossible theme song. There's also music by Devo, and the movie features an incredible live performance, well, videotape performance, from James Brown. It was produced by Robert K. Weiss. It was released on May 6th, 1983 the movie had a budget of eight million dollars but it only grossed about 10.8 million the movie stars dan Aykroyd as clifford skid skridlow the professor <laughs> and dr detroit it also stars Howard Hessman as Smooth Walker, the original pimp to the four women. The four ladies in question are per, are Monica McNeil, who is portrayed by Donna Dixon, who would later go on to become Mrs. Dan Aykroyd. Jasmine Wu is perf- uh, performed by Lydia Lay. Thelma is uh, portrayed by Lynn Whitfield. And Karen Blitstein is performed by Fran Drescher. The movie also stars T.K. Carter as Diablo Washington and Kate Murtaugh as Mom, the evil pimp. Because there are good pimps and evil pimps. Uh, In this universe, there are good pimps and evil pimps. (laughs) So let's get right into Dr. Detroit. So it is a crazy 80s comedy. This was back... Early 80s. Early 80s. Mm Mm-hmm. So, dealing with uh, Dan Aykroyd, who who would later go on to do much more family-friendly fare, uh, but this was in the period when he was doing, you know, he had done the Blues Brothers, he did a movie called Neighbors, 
It's uh, worth noting that Neighbors co-star John Belushi was a good friend of Dan Aykroyd. They had previously worked together in Blues Brothers. And this was the first movie that Dan Aykroyd did after Belushi's passing. It's... Yeah, go ahead. No. Also his first starring role. It was. It was his first starring role. He usually, he had usually had co-billing before. So this was kind of um, supposed to be a breakout movie for him. And uh, really didn't end up that way because the movie was critically panned and it did not do too well at the box office. In fact, uh, Fran Drescher, in her autobiography, Enter Whining, which is a great title if you're Fran Drescher to to call your autobiography, uh, said the movie had uh, very high expectations set and was supposed to be a blockbuster hit of the summer. That did not come to be. There was actually, at, at the end of the movie, there's a tease for Dr. Detroit 2, The Wrath of Mom, which Aykroyd was actually working on writing uh, as a sequel to this movie, but due to uh, a low performance at the box office, that was pulled. But we have a very, very interesting comedy here that probably, I would say, I don't know if Andrew would agree with me, probably couldn't have been done in any other decade other than the 80s. Yeah, I think I I could agree with that, Uh, especially the early 80s. I feel like things changed basically around 1984, and so this was 1983. Um, He he made Ghostbusters the next year in 1984. Um, If you compare Dr. Detroit and Ghostbusters, you will see a difference in movie making, uh, how... and. And basically, uh, I don't want to say target audience, but just the whole aesthetic and uh, in general. In 1983, I think things were still very much in party mode. And I'm not saying things weren't in 1984, but with movies, they started to take a different a different direction, more into family entertainment. Uh, but in the early 80s, you were still dealing with um, party movies, you know, and and things that were kind of pr- provocative. I don't know when Animal House was. I want to... 78. 78. 78 or 79. Okay, well, that might have started the whole genre that I have in mind. Now it's five years later in 1983, and and you've still got a lot of um, pretty much just crazy, crazy antics going on with a lot of people, um, and then a lot of, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll as well. Uh, Yeah. So, Dr. Detroit... Uh, and I was mentioning this when we were watching the movie. It almost, it, it deceptively kind of starts and Dan Aykroyd's doing this uh, physical performance where he's he's walking, he walks like he's got a load in his pants, kind <laughs> of. He's got his... Uh, he's doing that speed walking that, that, that people do to try to lose weight. Right. And he's, you know, he's stiff as a board and he's checking his watch, um... And it's, his rear view mirrors on his glasses. Exactly. Yeah, and he's got rear view mirrors on his glasses, and he's doing like his his fast walk, and the tone is is very light, and well, not to say that the rest of the movie isn't very light, but to go into some of the more uh, debaucherous areas, this this movie doesn't start with that right away, although there are hints of it. When the you know the car 
with Smooth Walker and the ladies pulls up and, uh, <laughs> and they notice him and then they splash him with a puddle. So it's almost like goofy Dan Aykroyd physical comedy uh, that he does a lot in his movies. But and then, you know, once the elements of, of prostitution and drugs are introduced, it still maintains a very light tone without... But I, I think that the tone is almost a little too light at the beginning. But that's just my personal opinion. So, I, the, the charm about this movie, and I, and I, think, I think it has loads of charm. Mm, I think yeah. that's, you know, that's kind of, um, if you're going to nitpick the movie at all, you know, it's, the charm level kind of saves the day with all of it. Um, and, I, and I actually like this movie. I don't I don't I don't feel like nitpicking at it at all. But there are people who don't don't like this movie. So, you know, but the thing that really got me involved was the characters, the performances and this overall sense of um communal humanity. <laughs> it's yeah. <laughs> I mean, these people these people are regardless of w what their antics are they are likable and you want to see everybody kind of be happy and get along because um that it's in the air it's in the air that these people can all get along and we're we're dealing with uh he's a college professor so we're dealing with the academia group that he represents his father is uh i think the dean of the college yeah yeah, yeah and so they're waiting for um they're hoping for this huge endowment that's going to keep the college running. And Dan Aykroyd is in charge of um, taking care of this benefactor who's coming to visit who will hopefully donate a lot of money. So you've got that going on. And then you've got, he's been basically, uh, I don't want to say abducted, but he's he, Dan Aykroyd is, has been coerced and taken into the world of it is, it's prostitution and all the things that that entails. So now we've got the subculture going on. We've got a real party uh, gang that's, that he's being in, uh, inducted into. And these two worlds, of course, are going to meet at the end of the movie. And, and uh, he has to navigate uh, these two worlds by the end of the movie and at the end they all basically come together and everybody is getting along so i like i like the philosophy of this uh and it's been done in movies before but in dr detroit uh it's there's something especially uh charming about it yeah so we have you know his characters are very straight laced very uptight very by the book um kind of guy and you know he he's coerced throughout the throughout the evening with um they start out with some drinks then smoking some some pot and then eventually leads to a handful of pills being dropped into his martini glass um and then he's um you know he's brought to this lab you know they they go out they dance they have a great meal and then he's brought back to this lavish apartment just uh, he describes it as vile <laughs> he describes this, some of it as vile vile decorations throughout the apartment 
And he's but other part vulgar, yes, vulgar. Vulgar. <laughs> But he's impressed by some of the art and stuff, and then they end up watching a pornographic movie, and um, then he is uh, introduced to uh, the, the the wonders of a of 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 an orgy in a hot tub, and um, you know it's it's interesting that we get. Um, we also get this uh, kind of dynamic where he's talking about he he's an English professor and he's talking about Lancelot and chivalry and um, your the ode to being good and your your oath of um, honesty and um, chastity. He chastity. actually says, "Yeah, he brings that up." So he's uh, he's kind of doing the dual nature of um, of kind of what he always wanted to do and. The fact that he still lives with his parents, he he seems that he's kind of a repressed individual when we first meet him. And Smooth Walker and these women, you know, and Diablo open up this whole new world to him. It's a it's a it's not an easy fit for him, and he's got some very conflicting ideas about it, you know. And then it's kind of just tossed into his lap that Smooth Walker owes eighty thousand dollars to mom. And if she doesn't get the money, then she's going to get the girls. And Smooth Walker is actually the one that comes up with the name Dr. Detroit. And he says that Dr. Detroit's moving in and there's nothing he could do about it. And it wasn't his fault that he doesn't have the money because Dr. Detroit's got the money. And then he splits. He splits town and uh, he basically says that, uh, yeah, Clifford, Cliff will take care of you now. So Cliff has really no choice but to become Dr. Detroit. So the transformation into Dr. Detroit, how do we, how do we? <laughs> well, it, we don't see Dr. Detroit until at least 20, 30, maybe even 40 minutes into the movie. Uh, his tra- we don't see his transformation. We get his voice first. We get Dr. Detroit's voice over the phone to mom, I believe. Uh, and we have Diablo, who is actually the chauffeur for Smooth and the girls. Uh, this this total uh, totally lovable but badass black guy, who yeah, is, Diablo's great. Yeah, who <laughs> is um, hanging out in in Dan Aykroyd's office when Dan Aykroyd puts on the Doctor Detroit voice for the first time over the telephone. And it's funny because we are hearing this weird, really, truly weird voice that Dan, Ar- Ac- Dan Aykroyd is coming up with for Dr. Detroit. But the camera is on Diablo and his reaction. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just this, this, it's pretty much like almost a solid minute of, of him just, you know, you see the expression of him thinking, what in the world is happening? What is he doing? What is this voice? Uh, and this is the beginning of Dr. Detroit. And then there is a showdown, well, a meeting that happens uh, a scene later, or a couple scenes later, where you actually see Dr. Detroit in his full, pimped-out regalia. And now we are into the character of the title of the movie. Yeah, I, and I think part of the reaction that Diablo has is because, you know, he's been around i mean there's a lot of talks about pimps and there's actually like he's like 
crowned head pimp at the end, Dr. Detroit is. Right, and, and, and when Dan Aykroyd figures out what actually is going on, he can't even say the word pimp. It's hysterical. Yeah. He can't get it out. <laughs> so, so the voice that he uses for Dr. Detroit is kind of like something out of an old horror movie, like a mad scientist. Or like even an Igor. Yeah, he's like, like Peter Laurie, maybe I don't know. Something. It's just bizarre, and I think the reaction is like that's not like how a like Diablo's reaction is like. Well, that's not how I've heard pimps talk. They're tough and like nothing scary about that. He's not swearing. He's not cursing. You know, like he makes like weird. Well, he does curse later on. I was gonna say. but yeah, you know, he does this very weird voice, and it's not the first weird voice that Dan Aykroyd does in this movie, though, too, because there's a scene previously where he has to get one of the, the one of the women has been picked up for solicitation, and is in uh, is in jail, and uh, the other three girls call him because you know he it's been left to him that he is their protector. He he won't be their p- pimp because he can't even say pimp he'll be there he agrees to be their protector and one of them gets picked up for solicitation so he buys off he buys the clothes of a lawyer that's waiting outside the uh the court who looks like colonel sanders looks exactly it looks like yeah and he notices that the uh the judge is an old uh He's got like Andrew, like Jackson, Jackson Lee, Pickett, like side something like that. Yeah. Like insert every civil confederate, insert every confederate um, <laughs> name, name here is the judge. So he he comes in and he starts talking like Foghorn Leghorn, <laughs> <laughs> and, and he yeah. and he says, "Oh, I'm outraged by this," and he's. He claims at one point that this woman is his sister. He is unaware that of the four women that have been picked up, because he doesn't know their names, it is the black woman that he is claiming to be his sister. And that leads to one of the funnier lines later on, after he finally persuades the judge, by coming down south, he will fill you up with shrimp, and I demand satisfaction. So the the judge agrees to release her and then sees who's released and his response is that's a colored woman and she says what is she- i ain't colored by nobody i was born this way <laughs> and it just but so we get our first glimpse of dan Aykroyd's like weird voice acting but then like we get the dr detroit voice which is very you know mom i won't meet you until midnight or 10 o'clock it's such a weird choice as a voice it really is and then it's made even weirder by his outfit uh, outfit he he raids the theater department up at college. <laughs> and finds lime green polyester pants. Right. He finds a metal hand that looks like a claw. Probably from a suit of armor. Oh, uh, yeah. That's, there you go. Like yeah. a Lancelot type of yeah. thing. And then he's got this Einstein wig, basically, <laughs> you know. Yeah. 
these weird glasses. And he's got this meda gold medallion that's basically a marijuana leaf. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's bizarre. You know what it made me think of, actually? All right. Uh, when, um, when they re released Feud about uh, the feud between Joan Crawford and Betty Davis, they showed uh, Susan Sarandon as Betty Davis. They showed her figuring out her costume for Baby Jane, for whatever happened to Baby Jane. And she's putting together all this crazy stuff, and everybody around her is thinking, what, what are you doing? You know? But of course she pulls it off brilliantly. And that made me think of that. It was just like, where did, where did Dan Aykroyd get the idea to throw these elements together to make this character Dr. Detroit? And somehow, somehow he makes it work. And then, yeah, we get the initial, yeah, we don't get to see Dr. Detroit until, uh, I think it's at least a half an hour into the movie. Mm -hmm. um, th we have this meeting at, it says it's a graveyard, but it's basically a, a junkyard. junkyard. It's the, a graveyard for cars. It's a, yeah. Um, you smash him, we stash him, I think <laughs> is the slogan. That's the billboard. And he shows up as Dr. Detroit, and he goes, Mom, no, I don't pay, I get paid. And then he comes up with the line. He's like, Mom, I'm going to rip your head off and shit down your neck. <laughs> and that's about all Mom can take. And so she she does what any, like, real pimp, I guess, in the pimp game would do. She has her hired goons open fire on him. Yeah. And there's a chase scene there in the junkyard. And uh, you really think that it's all going to go down, that Mom's going to win the day. Dr. Detroit slash Professor Clifford slash, uh, you know, the ladies of the night slash Diablo are all going to die there in the, in the junkyard, in the graveyard, the car graveyard. And this goes on for a little bit until what happens? How does he, st he gets, he grabs onto the cable of a crane and is all of a sudden flying over them. Yeah, he swings in like... Uh, like Tarzan. Yeah. Knocks one of the guards over. Uh, some of the other guards crash their cars chasing him. And then he finds this... I, I'm not sure what the technical term for this piece of machinery is, but it's like a big... It's almost like a... a like a hand or a wrench or something yeah. that, he's, that he controls from a tractor. And he picks her up. It's like a claw. It's almost like a little claw thing that I don't think would be used in a regular junkyard. I, I've seen what the... No, you. I think you can use those to pick up cars or pick up pieces of cars. I mean, usually they use those metal things, those magnet metal things. Right. Yeah, so I don't know what the hell this thing is. You're right. But, but he uh, uses it to pick her up. He picks her up. Turning point. And then just <laughs> drops her, and we don't we don't know what happens. He, like, she's high up in the air, drops her into, like, a stack of cars, so we think that's the end of Mom. And um, It's not. And uh, Dan Aykroyd's character kind of thinks that's the end of Dr. Detroit. He did what he had to do. He, he got rid of Mom. Um, but then, through a series of events, he, there were... It finds, you know, there's more to being Dr. Detroit, mostly because of Diablo saying that, like, because he, he goes, he says to the women and he says to Diablo, don't tell anyone about this. Cut to the next scene, Diablo telling everyone on the street uh, about Dr. Detroit uh, uh, and how uh, bad uh, he is. Building up some hype. 
Now, 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 Dan Aykroyd is in, in it. And and then this this quickly becomes one of those um, dual dual identity type movies where he has to be the professor. He has to pick up the um, the guy that's giving the endowment to the college. He has to teach classes, but he also at night has to uh, to show up on the streets and be Doctor Detroit. Mm-hmm. And what and you know, this movie is basically a fairy tale. Like you have to kind of just go along with it. But one thing they do, <laughs> one thing they do nail down, is the lack of sleep he has <laughs> juggling both of these roles. He's constantly trying to find, you know, time to have a nap. Basically, even where he goes into his desk and like closes the desk over him, that it's one of those slide down cabinets. Um, but we're given. I I think. It's a it's a very comedic scene, but it's also a very interesting scene. The dream sequence that deals with his dual identities, his conflicting ideologies. Here, yeah, he's 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 his chivalrous, his chivalrous ideology and philosophy is now being, conf, you know, is now being met with basically protecting prostitutes, ladies of the night, being a pimp, going into that underworld uh that would be uh, deemed a degradation for someone of his ilk yeah and and but we get this great dream sequence where he says he actually at one point looks directly at the camera and says i'm dreaming that's right right. yeah but it shows him he's in his pimp suit and he's getting all this money that all his ladies made for him and there's women everywhere and diablo's counting money and then in walks his his dad and the rest of the uh constituents of the 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 higher-ups of the college talking about oh you know this is wrong and la 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 and then it it explodes into this everything is for sale there's money there's money for everyone and they rip off their their business suits and they're all in their underwear and his they're, mom's parading around and that's right they're not even in business suits they're like in uh like like court like judge robes or something they were wearing judge robes and they're also wearing like the british like those those wigs, wigs. that they wear the, the jury yeah, yeah not the jury but the you know the the, the clergy lo- yeah uh well not clergy so anyway um this is very indicative of the party once again the party of uh, scene that was being plur- 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 proliferated yes in movies back in the early 80s and in the late 70s. Kind of like, party on, uh, don't worry about all the other stuff in life. So there's, you know, you you can have opinions about this, but in the context of Dr. Detroit, you really, you really, really want everyone to let their hair down and just enjoy each other's company and have a good time. And and we get that because uh, later on, you know, he's he's exhausted after being both the professor and um, Doctor Detroit. So he takes a nap. He, he crawls into his desk, pulls down the desk drawer, falls asleep. And um, the girls and Diablo said, "Nah, don't worry about it. We'll take care of everything." They grade his papers for him. They organize this uh, catered affair. 
the they order organize a catered affair for the um for the trustees and for the uh gentleman that's coming with the endowment and um it, it just so happens that one of the women portrayed by Fran Drescher has a her middle name is Catering. Um, yeah, Karen Catering. <laughs> which she literally states as her middle name at one point. She says, yeah, it's Karen. Yeah, my name is Karen Catering Blitzstein. <laughs> that so, might not really be her middle name. <laughs> She's just, she might be saying I, that. I, hey. cho- I choose to believe that it is her middle name. <laughs> I choose to believe that it is. It's an expression. <laughs> I take. I, I don't take anything that Fran Drescher says with a uh, with a pinch of salt. I think that she always shoots from the hip. She's a straight talker. I think her middle name is Catering, and her idea of catering an Indian affair is, of course, having Diablo grab buckets of Kentucky Fried Chicken, a big jar of. I don't know what it's it is. It's supposed to be curry, but it looks like mustard. Someone says it's not curry, but they end up you doing it as Some, a yeah. curry dish. KFC with this big yellow jar of something yeah, that they and, torch yeah. on fire, and it turns out to be this delicious <laughs> Indian cuisine that everybody loves. It's almost <laughs> so. It's almost like a like this whole dinner scene is almost like a an episode of a sitcom where like everything just happens to work out mm-hmm. like just happens to work out. Um, one of the ladies goes out to schmooze the people. The other two are cooking up the food with Diablos. Getting they're getting the food together, and then the um, the Asian girl goes out and does a, a provocative dance. Oh, that's right. That crazy dance. She does this crazy <laughs> dance, and like, and at first, like, you're kind of waiting. You're like, okay, she is a lady of the evening. Is this gonna get a little too provocative? But it turns out, like, she's a great dancer, and she does like a. Tra- it's almost like a traditional. Yeah, it's a traditional like Asian you Oriental. Is yeah. that word even okay to say anymore? Uh, no, but, but, well, <laughs> no, it's not. All right. Well, I mean, my understanding is you can say Oriental about something, just not someone. Yeah, it's very. It's confusing. a nice Oriental rug, so she's doing a nice Oriental dance. Okay. Okay. All right. Maybe. All right. All right. <laughs> so, but this is this is an interesting point that you bring up, Chris, because here, kind of lies in therein lies the rub with this. These ladies of the night, um, who are, you know, sex is their vocation. They are actually now starting to use other facets of themselves, their personalities, to to do what's necessary for the, uh, you know, evolution of this plot as it unfolds. And so here we, they're they're starting to become uh, very... um, uh, They become real characters. They do. And they're resourceful. They be, the resourcefulness comes out. That's where the charm starts coming out. And you start identifying them as people who are... Uh, More than just their profession. Yes. They're given personality. They're given time to shine. Yes. The, the, um, the, the Asian girl shows that she's a, a remarkable dancer. Fran Drescher shows that she could somehow whip together... A catered affair. That people actually love... Um, uh, Donna Dixon's character gets to schmooze mm-hmm. and, and and talk and uh, mm-hmm. 
She she actually doesn't she end up uh, at the end. We see what happens. You know when they write on the screen what happens to right. all the characters. Yes. She ends up marrying the benefactor. Right? She does, doesn't she? Yeah. And they both become involved in Republican politics, which is a great little end note. But it's great because we get to see these characters. They're not. I mean, for a movie that is based on pimps and prostitutes. They become they're they're dealt with as real people. Mm-hmm. There is an element that rises above these uh, conventional stereotypes and understandings of these of these characters. And so, like, and they feel I don't know if obligated is the right word, but because of all the help that you know Doctor Detroit has given them, they 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 want to give back. They want to help him succeed they could have easily just blown it off because they had they had no if if this dinner fails doesn't affect them at all right but they genuinely like they have a connection and it's weird you have the four women you have diablo and then you have cliff slash dr detroit and it's almost like a weird family unit kind of deal um yep and you don't think that the you don't think that the ladies are going to help him out because they're so uh, hell bent on um, getting him to do what they want at the beginning. Especially, they do seduce him. They do seduce him, and you do think that they are very capable of leaving him uh, stranded, at the, you know, um, on the side of a street somewhere, you know, and just not even giving a shit about him. But that's not at all how it turns out. No, they genuinely and, start caring for him and about and, him. and you believe the relationship they have. It's a very, yeah. it's a, it's a friendship. It's a reciprocal. Yep. Respect. Yes. And even when he finds out that he was duped and it turns out that they are prostitutes, he he never once says anything degrading towards no. them. Um, no. Well, because he, he is he is very chivalrous and he is um, he he believes he believes in protecting the female, uh, you know, the female the female <laughs> and, and some people may see that you know as like uh i don't know anti-feminist but he's the the idea of chivalry is very strong in his character and it's a very prominent theme in this movie and he uses it for these ladies who probably wouldn't get much respect from uh from men no and uh... And I would say it, uh, these are all very, four very strong, very confident women as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, Smart. I, the, yes, yeah. they're, they're all, they're not like airhead bimbos no. kind of, it's, and they're portrayed, the only, the only time that, um, that they really needed his help was when, you know, when one of the women was picked up for solicitation. And other than that, I mean... They don't rely too much on Dr. Detroit other than just, like, having his... Well, and having him keep keep them from becoming mom's... Possessions. Right, exactly. And that, you know, mom is not going to treat them very well at all. No. Mom runs uh, her her prostitution ring under the guise of a limo service. (laughs) Um, We don't actually see any of mom's prostitutes in the movie we only see mom's henchmen uh johnny and carson which is a not too subtle nod at johnny carson but these are the bald uh lackeys 
for mom <laughs> that we see throughout the movie. But um, yeah, so we kind of get like it's it's a sitcom esque kind of scenario with the dinner party. It's like, are we going to be able to get everything together? Like, oh my God, the kitchen's on fire. Like, are we going to be able to pull it off at the last minute? Uh, you know, we got five minutes left of the episode. Is everything going to work out? There's very, very much of this going on throughout the movie. Uh, it accumulates at the end with uh, him. Uh, there, are two, there are two events going on in, at the same venue. And one is the... Uh, Players the, ball. The players ball for the for the members of the academia, and well, now wait a minute. No, the players ball is for the for the prostitutes and the, yes, and, their and the pimps. Yeah, and the pimps. And then there's the uh, the meeting that the luncheon or the dinner. It's a dinner that the that the college is throwing for the benefactor who is hopefully going to donate a lot of money, and we've got Dan Aykroyd going back and forth between playing you know being himself as the professor and being Doctor Detroit. Uh, and it's very reminiscent of the end of Mrs. Doubtfire, where she's where Robin Williams is having to do that back and forth. And I believe that's in a restaurant. As it well. is. Yeah. Even in Mrs. Doubtfire or Miss Doubtfire, I don't know how. Mrs. Mrs. Doubtfire. I think she, Robin Williams is changing outfits in the kitchen back and forth. Yes. Just like, just like in Dr. Detroit. Yeah, because in Mrs. Doubtfire, he's supposed to be having the family dinner as Mrs. Doubtfire. But at the same time, he's also supposed to be having a meeting for, um, he's a voice actor. I think he's supposed to ha be having a meeting with a casting agent. Okay. And, um, different yeah. St different stakes here. But, yeah. yeah. But, no, we, you and I both, 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 after we watched the movie, we were like, that whole end scenario is so Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. We were like, thinking that. We didn't even say it to each other. Um, he's Until running, he's running back and forth through the kitchen, mm -hmm. changing you know, putting on the wild Dr. Detroit outfit with the glove mm. and then turning, he actually just turns his clothes inside out to become Dr. Detroit. Mm. Then he has to go back because he has to present the benefactor. Um, it's, it's, it feels like a, a scene that I've seen. It feels like a scene that I've seen. That's a terrible <laughs> sentence. It feels like, <laughs> it feels like a scene that previously I've observed. Oh God, that's even worse sentence. It feels like, um, it just feels like a cliche. It feels like a cliche scene. Like this, this having to be in two places at once. It feels like I've seen it so many times, but given that this movie came out in 1983, this was, this was before it became a cliche scene. And I guess the most noteworthy movie, because it came to both of our minds, is Mrs. Doubtfire. But I, I'm sure there's numerous other other examples of how this sort of plays out. But yeah, this I can't one, think of anything off the top of my head. But this one is the best because when he goes into the player's ball to accept his um, king of the player's ball crown, mantle, he doesn't really accept anything other than the title, I guess. We get the hardest working man in show business, James Brown. And the movie becomes a real party. The movie's been a party up until then a lot. But then it becomes a real party... All the way to having everybody do a choreographed dance together on the dance floor, it, which is exhilarating. It it's is. so much fun. It watch. is. I mean, it just looks like a blast. Yeah, with James Brown on stage. With James Brown on stage, he's doing the splits. Yeah. <laughs> he's 
He's doing a Dr. Detroit song, and then he does uh, Get Up Off of That Thing. Yep. It's just a lot of fun. And then... So should we mention real quick, like, Devo wrote a song for this movie. James Brown performed a song that was written for this movie, right? Yes. Wow. Yeah, Devo does the theme song, Dr. Detroit. But then there's also um, James Brown's song, I think, is also called Dr. Detroit. Yeah. But it also turns into... Um, Get up off of that thing, so it's like a medley type deal, okay. kind of, kind of melding one of his old classics with the Doctor Detroit thing, but it's so much fun because like it's another it's another kind of scene that you see like all of a sudden everybody just knows how to dance. Yep, you've seen that a lot in movies. Yeah, well, a lot you know, of I love I love musicals, so oh. at that point it becomes a musical basically, which is fine <laughs> in a musical, but sometimes it just seems like in a lot of these like kind of like teen rom-coms like they'll show a, a prom scene and then like it just seems that everyone's like classically trained at dancing because they're doing these amazing dance moves all know, over the place i know that scene and i know that movie i can't remember it's just it, it, it just kind of it's it takes you out of it in movies like that but for this movie it works it, it works really really well and i wonder if it wouldn't have worked as well if we didn't have James Brown there live on stage because he just like adds. Oh yeah. He's just like a, a he just like kickstarts this last, the last third of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, have you, have you know, have you ever been to a party? Uh, do, do they even have parties like this anymore? Where it's just so exciting and so electric and someone starts, you know, a dance move and it becomes contagious and everybody's doing the same dance together. It's, it's like that. Yeah, you know, it is. It is kind of like that. Sure, there's yeah, there's dances like the uh, the Macarena or the electric slide right. stuff like that. Right. But this is just like an original kind of like it starts out with a robot, but it just turns into this like really funky yeah. dance. But the whole movie is kind of like fantastical. Yes. Already, it's already like. I mean, I see it as a fairy tale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I definitely, yeah. especially with the um the. the just the talk about Lancelot and everything. That's right. It adds to the like the fantastical qualities there. It, I the screenwriting. Um, we should mention the screenwriters because it's pretty interesting. So, Carl uh, Gottlieb. How do you pronounce that? Go yeah, I think that's Yo, as close as Gott you're gonna get. <laughs> uh, Co-wrote Jaws. Bruce J. Friedman was known for his uh, uh, dark humor. Novels mostly and some screenplays, and Robert Boris, um, also known for some um, comedic screenplays. But I, there's there's three more writers. Three writers. There's a lot more thought to, into this movie than I think it's given credit to, because because of the scenes with um, him talking about chival chivalry and Lance a lot, like at the at the um, at the at the college and i think the the dream sequence where you see the two personalities collide um th there's thought there because there's a lot of there's a lot of um symbolism going in there well and also i mean a man who has dreams of being larger than life somewhat of a hero who gets to live it out for real and live it out in the most um, uh, 
unexpected circumstances, and he does have moral issues with it, and he has to reconcile himself with those moral issues, but that is how he gets to live out his dream as being um, a, a hero and a protector, basically. Yeah, and... Um, like a Sir Walter Raleigh. Yeah, mm-hmm. so why I think that, um, like, surface level... Um, it it might not seem like there's a lot there, but it, I think that the, the they they gave it a lot of thought to um to the character, and it's kind of it's you know it gets silly with the voice of Doctor Detroit sounding like this, but you know it's supposed to be a fun. It's supposed to be which which is more annoying that voice or Fran Drescher's voice? Oh. Uh. <laughs> It's yeah. almost like they have the same voice with that. <laughs> oh, Mr. Shetfield. Ah, <laughs> oh. uh, yeah, I do not like Frank Dresser's voice. <laughs> you know, so, you know, just just as a quick side note, like Fran Drescher is responsible for basically effing up my feet for a, almost a year. Uh, when I was when I was in L.A. this last time that I was in L.A. I did audience work for a sitcom that she did. It's called, I can't even remember, it's a very recent one. Uh, And when I got out, I didn't, my car had broken down and the buses had stopped running and I had to walk across LA in dress shoes. And it screwed up my feet for about a year. So thank you, Fran, for that. Oh, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Glad I could help. You know, I always try to treat my my employees as well as I can. Um, enough of my Fran Drescher voice, uh, because I don't like Fran Drescher voice. <laughs> Nor do I like doing the Doctor Detroit voice. It's yeah, it's it's an adult comedy, and it's a lot of fun. And the the final act, of all things, they end up. I guess this particular restaurant uses uh, fencing swords instead of skewers because that's what they are fencing with initially starts out as skewers because there's meat and vegetables on it. I think when mom (laughs) picks up hers, I think there's like a whole chicken on hers that she just flings off. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it all culminates in... um, A sword fight between Dr. (laughs) Detroit and mom with the... Yeah. So he's called out by being, first of all, he's called Fruit Cup. (laughs) One of the lackeys calls Fruit Cup, which is a callback to an earlier scene where they're discussing what was going to be served at this dinner. And one man was very adamant that there be Fruit Cup for some reason. (laughs) There weren't Fruit Cups last year. Yeah, he was very upset about it. Be one this year. And and they assured him that there would be Fruit Cup. (laughs) So... He makes his uh, appearance as Dr. Detroit at the player's ball. Then he goes back. He thinks everything's all well and good, although he crosses paths with Mom and Johnny and Carson in between changing from Dr. Detroit back into the Professor Cliff motif. And so they um, they call out Cliff, and he, he runs away, dresses up like Dr. Detroit, Goes back to the players' ball, says that they have to leave. Mom and the goons show up. They start running around this hotel in the back, in between the two rooms, and they end up sword fighting. The sword fighting breaks 
into the the gala for the college just as the um benefactor is presenting his check. Yeah. The one million dollars. <laughs> the one million dollar check uh that will save the college and all will be well. As soon as it's presented, we get mom and Dr. Detroit sword fighting right across the room. The player's ball empties into the uh into the reception for the college. Dan Aykroyd is unwigged <laughs> and is uh, shown to be, you know... An imposter! An imposter. It was Clifford all along, and his mom even explains, Cliff! And he goes, yes, mom, it's me. And then he goes back to sword fighting. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and he goes back to sword fighting mom, and he, he finally gets mom. He has won the battle. And he exiles her like one would exile someone from the kingdom. They were banished from the kingdom and he exiles her from the life of being a pimp, I guess. Uh, he ex- he exiles her, yes, from being, from being our four ladies pimp, you know? Yes. Right? And so, and then he makes a speech that basically, uh, you know, saves the day about... Being the protector for them. Once again, a very strong theme. And it wouldn't fly if if it weren't Dan Aykroyd and the la- and the actresses playing the four ladies. It really, really works. Uh, and you want them to win. You want them to rise above all the odds that they're up against. Yeah, and he, his speech includes lines about how there's a doctor inside all of us. And then when tyranny reels its ugly head, the doctors must rise and take care of it. Mm-hmm. It's all, yeah, it is. It's a, it's a, it's an adult fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, speaking of fairy tales, I mentioned to you before we started recording and watching this movie, a little movie called Tiptoes, which is also an adult fairy tale that will haunt Andrew for the rest of his life. Yes. we'll talk about tiptoes at some point actually no we probably won't (laughs) but if you're listening to this and you're curious google tiptoes the movie and um leave us hate comments about why would you make me watch the trailer to tiptoes (laughs) while talking about dr detroit and i really have just a non sequitur uh it's a very and then it ends on a very happy note. We get a, a very happy ending. He says that these women are a, are not bound to anyone anymore, that they are free. He basically frees them and he says, Diablo, maybe we will ride again one day. And they basically are freed because when you see in writing what happens to the characters after the movie is over, um, you see that they have gone off to different lives outside of their profession. They basically legitimized themselves. So, it, you know, it's not like, it's not like the, the, it's not like the ladies of the night continue the professions. No. And yeah, we are given a very, we're given um, a couple epilogues to, to say how our characters are doing. And, and, and one of them is that um, Donna Dixon's character marries the, the wealthy benefactor and um Thelma goes on to become James Brown's manager road manager <laughs> yep uh, <laughs> I did they say anything for the other women because I did. know they did they covered everyone 
Did they? I can't remember, though. Because I don't remember what happened to... I know that Karen ends up marrying Cliff. I don't remember what happened to Jasmine, though. Uh, Jasmine and... Jasmine Diablo. And, Jasmine and Diablo, they bought a football team. They bought a football team. <laughs> That's right. Everybody has a happy ending. And Smooth Walker lives in Hawaii with four Samoans. <laughs> Female. Female Samoans. <laughs> Not that it matters. We don't judge. Um, well, he's... Oh, it's not him that that makes uh, the the hom the homo remark. It's actually Dan Aykroyd at the beginning, isn't it? Because Howard Hessman, uh, smooth, like offers to buy him a drink, and he's thinking to himself, "Uh, is this man homosexual? What what am I in for here?" Uh, but decides to do it anyway. But it's funny because he immediately recounts that with, "Well, he's sitting with four beautiful women. Right? Maybe they're not homosexual." Right. <laughs> There's just some really weird quotes in this movie. And we chose to do this movie because we had been dealing with some 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 heavy topics recently on the show. We just kind of needed a fun fun movie to um lighten things up. To lighten things up. And if you haven't seen Dr. Detroit and you've listened to us talk about Dr. Detroit, it's it's a a, a comedy that uh couldn't have been made in any time but the 80s i think yeah probably not probably and not as someone i read somewhere or heard someone say that this movie smells like cocaine <laughs> i can see it i can i can see why you might say that that scene where they're all seducing dan Aykroyd towards the beginning of the movie and howard hessman is talking to him and he's got He's got, it looks like he's grown out his pinky nail, and it's got cocaine on it. And nothing ever happens, Yeah, but you just see it. You see it, you see it, and, you have, and it's pretty overt. It's it's something that I've seen in movies. It's kind of like the stereotypical, like, they call it the coke pinky. Okay, I've never heard that before. It's weird. I've seen it in other movies that, like, they grow out, like, every other, every other nail on your finger will be nice and short, but, like, you'll have your pinky nail grown out really long and i've seen it in movies that that so when they're going to test cocaine like they'll scoop it mm -hmm. um with the the coke pinky to test it out so it's got a random coke pinky although it doesn't really there's no mention of cocaine there's a lot of uh pot smoking in the movie yeah um there's also yeah there's also just the random pills that are dropped into his drink at one point. It's hilarious. Um, it's just a lot of fun, and it's it's the kind of movie that I I I a major studio wouldn't touch today. I would I would venture to guess. Yeah, um, I don't think so. I mean, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think. I mean, what the the Hangover movies maybe are similar. Do you think? Yeah, I could. Yeah, um, but the Hangover movies are a lot darker, and the humor is a lot more twisted. Twisted. The humor is darker. I don't want to say it's more juvenile, but this the, this kind of humor, the humor in this movie, for the, given the subject matter, is relatively light. It is light. And and there once again there's a jovial 
joviality, if that's the right word to it. Um, everyone is pretty much, let me think, except for mom and her henchmen, everyone is pretty much well-intentioned, good-intentioned. You know, you don't have people kind of running around doing, um, you know, nefarious things that much, or dodgy things that, well, dodgy. People are being dodgy in this. But everyone pretty much kind of has good intentions, in my opinion. You so, know? I say it probably wouldn't get made today because I think that uh, the women would probably be a bit more objectified. There would have to be nudity. I don't think there's any nudity in this movie. I don't think we saw any of those women completely naked. No, I think there would have... At all. Yeah. Well, it, I, you know, I, not even in bikinis. No. Like usually I, they were in evening gowns. I, in the dream sequence, they were wearing lingerie. And okay. I think that that's about as much as we yeah. got. Yeah. But for an R-rated comedy now, because you bring up the hangovers, I think it's the most profitable R-rated comedy. So... Dr. Detroit wouldn't fly because there's no nudity. I don't think I heard the F word. I don't think I heard the F word either. So, so like, studios now are all about... Yeah. If you're going to make a, a an art comedy, it's got to be raunchy. Yeah. There's got to be some nudity, and there's got to be a lot of harsh language. Yeah. So, like I said, this movie, like, it's almost... I almost think that this movie... Uh, could have gotten away with the PG-13. Okay, I am going to venture to say that despite the subject matter of the movie and the and the wild, the wildness of this movie, there is, there, I'm going to just say it, I dare to say that there's an innocence about it. It is. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, which is, which is very endearing. It is. Uh-huh. And that's why I say I don't think a movie like this would be made today because there would it, it, we wouldn't have those sorts of 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 uh characters. And um I just as we start to wrap up here, I did want to talk about Dan Aykroyd and kind of his um he likes he does a lot of family-friendly kind of stuff, but he also likes some darker material. Um, the original Ghostbusters was intended to be much darker set up wise, just as more of a serious movie about actual fighting ghosts. Really? Yeah. It was, um, less, less humor, more, more horror. Isn't that wild? Isn't that interesting? It was also not supposed to take place on earth. It was like, they were supposed to be like time tra not time traveling like galaxy jumping ghostbusters um, that would go to different planets and stuff like hitchhiker's guide or something like yeah. that the universe okay but i guess galaxy. that once they brought in uh Harold Ramis and once they brought in Ivan Reitman the director uh they convinced Aykroyd that let's focus on what we know we know New York City let's just keep the go <laughs> let's keep the ghostbusters in New York City so okay. I but he also and keep it a comedy, I guess. And yeah, yeah, let's you know pump up the comedy. But um, actually, the first Ghostbusters though, it, it it's got some it's got some real dark material in there. Um, some of the ghosts are legit scary. I know that I found the first that first librarian ghost to be very scary at yeah. a young age. Um, there's also the ghost blowjob scene, which oh, that's right. I don't know it's how. So horny. 
No, no it's not Sigourney. It's, it's Dan it's, Aykroyd. It's he's Dan. he's just lying in bed and his um his belt unbuckles, his pants unzip, and then his eyes roll back into his head. I don't know how they got that <laughs> past anybody. Wow. But um, but he likes darker stuff, and that brings me to a a movie that he wrote with his brother and directed called Nothing But Trouble, which is a very dark comedy. Um. Kind of a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yuppie, weird. Uh, my point is that he likes some of the some of the darker elements, but he's also able to bring in levity and and likability to his characters. I'm surprised that his instincts go toward the darker nature because it just I don't see him that way. Like his comedy is very. Uh, lighthearted to me at least, at least that's my opinion so he was talking about and i actually just saw this recently because of the new ghostbusters coming out it had to do with um i believe it was his grandfather who um had a, was very interested in various religions and was interested in the paranormal and it, it, it that kind of came from his grandfather um, mm. having such interest in it and him kind of like reading kind of some of the stuff that his grandfather had around. Mm. Um, yeah. w- that's kind of where the genesis for um, Ghostbusters came from. So Dan Aykroyd was basically the the spearhead for Ghostbusters or one of the main spearheads for Ghostbusters yes. during its inception? He was, inception? yes. He okay. and Harold Ramis, I believe, are the credited screenwriters for it okay and, and this I, is on the heels of dr detroit right and i know that the plan was to have belushi involved in ghostbusters gotcha um gotcha but he passed he had passed away already but All right. yeah so yeah it's weird because a lot of we were looking over dan Aykroyd's filmography and like a lot of it is light family comedy kind of stuff pg pg 13 he's done some drama but a lot of the comedy stuff, um, it, it's pretty lighthearted. But there are, there are some darker movies in his catalog, and Doctor Detroit has some dark subject matter. But it's also one of the most colorful, colorful characters that he's ever portrayed. I think. Mm. Um, so it's just interesting. Um, yeah, nothing but trouble if you haven't seen it. Uh, he plays a decrepit old, uh, like judge that runs this very small town in upstate new york and he's the judge jury and executioner literally um and uh but he's he's got a he's got a weird voice like dr detroit does he's got weird prosthetic makeup on and um it's just a it's it's interesting um that the the germ for that movie came from him and his brother I believe it was his brother was recovering from surgery, so he couldn't see anything funny. So the two of them went to to see the original Hellraiser. It's just it's weird enough to think of Dan Aykroyd going to purchase a movie ticket to see Hellraiser. I just kind of think that's kind of that would be interesting because, like, you know, I I wasn't old enough to to go to see Hellraiser in the theater, but imagine waiting in line to see Hellraiser and you look and there's Dan Aykroyd, probably one of the last people you would think to kind of show up. But um, not after what you've told me, though. No, I guess not. <laughs> but uh, it's just uh, it, Doctor Detroit kind of 
it sticks out because it's one of um you know he he other than the blues brothers he he did a couple other um movies where it was an R-rated comedy but he's much more known He's such a straight man in in Blues Brothers. It's almost like a Laurel and Hardy thing going on between him and Belushi. So it's it's fun to see him play this character in Doctor Detroit, and he's he's busting his ass. It's very physical. All the stuff that he does in this movie, and he's running around, running around, running around. Uh, you know, make tr- trying to save the day, trying to keep it all together, trying to keep everything together. So you you get your money's worth just by watching his performance. He's he's basically balls out, just like you know, working it all the way, one hundred and fifty percent. Yeah, despite the R rating, it's really not. Like I said, I think this. I, My mom liked it. Yeah. I saw this. I saw this on VHS it, when I was young. Like like this was. 83, so what was I, 13, 14? Saw it with my mom. She loved it. I was going to say, like, the Hangover movies, I, I probably would want to watch with my parents. This movie I could easily watch with my parents and not worry about, even even though it deals with the, the, the prostitutes. We don't ever see an act of prostitution. There's very little talk of it at, at all. So it's it's a really fun movie. I'm... I'm not really sure. I, I mean, I know it didn't get the best reviews, but I, I, I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe we should have looked to see what else this was going up against in the summer of 83 to, to why it did so bad at the box office. I'm trying to think. Was was I, <laughs> I shouldn't say this, but I remember, I think it was my 13th birthday, which would have been in 83, I made my mother take my friends and me to see Zorro the Gay Blade with George Hamilton, which uh, is a stupid comedy and doesn't compare to Dr. Detroit, in my opinion. So, uh, yeah, I don't know what else it was up against that summer. So for whatever reason, but that's why the cult film companion, we find these little, these these movies that are, are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. I don't think I did our little tagline in the beginning of the episode, so I'll do it right now. Um, this movie is definitely, um, it was a blip on the cinematic radar, very briefly, in 83. Probably got played a lot on HBO. I, I, could I don't see. think so. No? Not, not from what I remember. Or cable TV. It, it's actually a movie, like I said, the, the language could easily be edited. I'm sure this was a staple of cable television some point in time i i I don't think so chris for real okay yeah i mean you could be right but it wasn't on my radar at all and i watched a lot of tv back then okay Uh, yeah and i don't ever remember even hearing about this movie until you and i were discussing it uh just random movies a couple months ago and you had mentioned this movie um yeah i don't talk about it with people i never really have but i remember that time watching it and it was agreed upon that with with those of us who were watching it that was a, it was a little gem that was unnoticed it is it's a little gem so to wrap up this episode let's briefly talk about Donna Dixon and Dan Aykroyd and their love story behind the scenes cuz it's actually kind of, it's it's the kind of hollywood love story that you hear very often but these two met back in during the making of this movie they are still together to this very day and have three children. Yeah. And yeah. we watched 
a baffling, and I will explain why it's baffling, brief interview. If you want to go onto YouTube, you can watch Fran Drescher apparently has a talk show, and uh, she brought on Dan Aykroyd and Donna Dixon. Um, it's baffling because it appears that Donna Dixon is talking with a British accent. And it seems like she carries with her a British flag. It may not be because she never opens it up, but she's carrying it with her as she goes onto the studio set. And we both thought, we both kind of looked at each other and went, she's British. Yeah. But then I went onto Wikipedia, she's from Virginia. <laughs> so I don't know where this came from. Uh, she doesn't sound like this in the movie, uh, and I know that she she and uh, Dan did three movies together after this. They did the Twilight Zone movie, Spies Like Us, and The Couch Trip. I, I don't really remember her. She hasn't done nearly as much acting as her husband. Well, they have three kids. Someone's got to raise those kids. That's right. But yeah, it's baffling because uh, we both thought she was talking with the British accent, and she's from Virginia. So... That's um kind of a weird story to end on for kind of a weird movie, Dr. Yep. Detroit. I also would recommend, and sometimes I, I, I say to avoid the trailer for a movie, watch the trailer for Dr. Detroit. Right, Andrew? Yeah, it's fun. It's it's a fun trailer. Um, I'm not going to spoil to why it's fun, but it's just... It's not all clips from the movie. It's Dan. It's Dan Aykroyd being Dan Aykroyd, and it's fun. It's almost like half SNL skit and then parts of the movie. Yeah, and it's 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 funny. Um, and it's a sh- it's a shame that they don't do more trailers like this, because trailers. I think I have a real love hate relationship with trailers. Uh, last week, Blue Collar hate the trailer because the the last scene of the trailer is the last scene of the movie, and to uh, me yeah. that just Ruins I, it. I don't know. I don't know why. It's a very epic picture, but we talked enough about that on Blue Collar. But uh, Doctor Detroit, the trailer is worth watching, as is the movie. Um, so hopefully, and it won't spoil anything. For it you. doesn't spoil, but, but this podcast will. <laughs> yeah, but so again, I, I reiterate. I always reiterate this at the end of the episode. I should probably start doing this at the beginning of the episode, although it's all over our social media that we do deep dives into these movies. So we talk all aspects. So we spoil everything. We have discussions about the movie beforehand. We take notes. We do some research. Uh, So, yeah, if you're listening to this, it's too late now for Dr. Detroit. We've ruined it for you. (laughs) No, 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 no. Watch it anyway. It's fun to watch, you know, even if you know what's going on. It is. It's just a real fun movie. It it flies by because... It's before you know it, you're at that ending scene, you know, with the two different parties going on. There's like no fat that needed to be trimmed from this movie. And I think, you know, who knows what the original runtime was. But this movie is it's paced very, very well. It's one fun scene after another. But the settings are different. The characters are different. Their dynamics are different. So it's. It's always fresh, and it's just a great... It's just a lot of fun, and we had a lot... It's just a fun movie, and sometimes that's what you need after watching something like like, uh, Blue Collar, which is... 
it's it's a great movie, but it's it's not an easy watch just because it kind of drains you afterwards. As with Doctor Detroit, it's just kind of like it's fluffy. It's almost like cotton candy. Yeah. Um, but it's a fun. It's a fun movie. Or a bag of pop rocks. Right. <laughs> With the uh, Coke Chaser. <laughs> there you go. Now we've got it. Yes. Dr. Detroit, we rate it a bag of pop rocks with a Coke chaser. Yes. That is our official rating. If for some reason you haven't watched this movie and you're still listening to us, watch the movie or rewatch the movie if you need it. Um, this has been the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are on... Uh, Take two. This is the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. Andrew, final thoughts on Dr. Detroit. Final thoughts on Dr. Detroit. We've said it. We've said it all. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's, almost, it's almost like doing a deep dive into Dr. Detroit serves as an injustice. Like, it needs to just kind of be enjoyed. Yeah, yep. and um, sometimes that's what we if you like an occult movie, you just want like the a comedy that you haven't seen. And this, I can't really think. Although it, it did, um, it is reminiscent. I remember we were uh, we were doing some research before, and they talked about the very brief trend in Hollywood of the straight guy becomes a pimp. Yeah, and they mentioned uh, and and the nerd culture. Nerd culture, too, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like Revenge of the Nerds, Weird Science, yeah, stuff um, like that. And it's very, Clifford is very much a nerd at, at the start of the movie. He's, uh... Who finds his inner coolness. Yeah, so you get that. You get the straight guy becomes a pimp, like in uh, Night Shift and uh, Risky Business. Yeah. But this thing is its, its own beast, and I kind of wish that we got Dr. Detroit to The Wrath of Mom. Yeah, that would have been fun. It would have been a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to hold my breath. I I think that that ship has sailed. I think so, too. <laughs> yeah. So, um, again, just a fun movie. And sometimes we need... Sometimes we don't have that much to talk about because it's just kind of a fun movie. And you just kind of really have to enjoy it. And uh, the, the, the deeper... Th- the deeper stuff we already got into so it's a great it's a great window into the early 80s though for better or for worse whatever your opinion is of that era um it's a it's a it's a little time capsule of a movie and you can see how life was back then you know and it's one of those movies i've watched it a couple times now that there's certain lines that i didn't like they kind of passed by me and it's so this is the kind of movie when i rewatch, i catch jokes that i i didn't see the first time uh, like there's that's a sign of a good place. yeah th- there's one sign um the the joke that i noticed this time around was that when the benefactors uh he arrives at the train station and he's waiting for dan Aykroyd to pick him up guy walks up to him and he says hey you need a taxi and the benefactor goes to him are you a taxi he goes no jackass i'm a human <laughs> Like, but I drive a taxi. But I drive a taxi, you know, just like I, for, for whatever reason, I missed that joke. Initially, I was just like, that's, that's a good, that's a good joke. And there was another joke that I missed about, like, he's really, really high. The first time he goes to Smooth Walker's apartment and he says, what, what vile 
like home furnishings yeah. you have. It's just it. It's you can rewatch it. So if you've, you've seen it already, rewatch it, and it you'll probably catch some jokes that you missed the first time around. And it, it's it's a fun movie to watch. And sometimes you just need a fun movie to watch. You don't want to think too much about it. Guilt free fun. Doctor Detroit. Dan Aykroyd. Anything else? Nope. All right. So. For Andrew, my name is Chris. This has been the Cult Film Companion Podcast. Thank you all again for tuning in, and we hope to talk to you again real soon.